Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Andrea Suarez is returning to the studio. She was last here when she came on with Kevin Dahlgren and she was talking about We Heart Seattle. Andrea is still a part of We Heart Seattle. She is not only the founder, she has grown it. They have a board. They have funding. She just got a $100,000 check the other day. So she's back to give us an update on We Heart Seattle, what they're doing. They've actually been to Portland. She can talk a little bit about that too. And they did a lot in terms of cleaning up the Pearl District. And they're certainly available to do that. If that's something that you or your neighborhood association is interested in, you can hire We Heart Seattle to teach you their outreach model. We also have Patrick Burnight here, and he's with Andrea. He met Andrea when he was living on the streets. We're going to hear about his story. He is now the resource navigator at Bybee Lakes Hope Center, which, of course, is here within Multnomah County and was in danger of losing its funding, was recently funded by the county. So we thank the county for stepping up and doing that for Bybee Lakes. Patrick and Andrea, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Patrick, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your story, how you ended up on the streets, and how you got to where you are now, where you're sitting across from me with this resource navigation job. Sure. Um, Back in 2021, uh, when COVID started, I was fully employed. I had my own place. I, you know, everything was going great, but I was a functioning drug addict. I could do everything. Once COVID hit and once I lost my job, once I, that relationship I was in ended, I, you know, fell apart, basically. Ended up on the streets of uh, Seattle and uh, got by just by getting by. Eventually lost everything. My ID, my, you know, uh, uh, communication devices, all of that, you know, just went away. And I, you know, just found myself Spiraling in, you know, just drug addiction, you know, getting by on the streets. Uh, you, it becomes its own uh, uh, infrastructure and economics. Uh, and that lifestyle, it kind of self-perpetuates after a while. When did the drug addiction start? Uh, drug addiction actually had started back in the 90s. Um, I... Uh, I've been a musician, I've been and played music and all that, and then that came part and parcel with that in some cases. And um, I was into drugs in the early 90s. I got out of it once I started a family and did all that. And so I spent a good, you know, 10 years uh, basically clean and sober. Uh, but once a few things in my life happened, uh, my uh, twin sister died. I got divorced that same year, um, so it was. Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I mean, your, your twin sister died of. Uh, are you cancer. comfortable saying? Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, and um, all those factors uh, factored into that. I started doing drugs again. I started, you know, um, I was still functioning. You know, I had jobs. I I was actually pretty su- successful. I worked uh, in IT field, 
And um, but then uh, 2009. So we're backing up a little bit. 2009 came around um, and there was a recession, lost a job there. Uh, I was on unemployment for almost two years. You know, during that period, and got heavily back into drugs, and you know, I, are you comfortable saying what your drugs of choice were? Oh, methamphetamine. Yeah, that was that was my drug of choice. Uh, alcohol, methamphetamine. Did you notice methamphetamine change? Sam Quinones has a article from the from uh, the Atlantic a number of years back called "I Don't Even Know If They Call It Meth Anymore," and he right. talks about how it becomes P to, it became P to P meth. Yeah. Did you notice a change in your supply at all? Absolutely. Uh, over the years, it would change. Like I said, I I was a functioning addict. I did it on weekends and, and party with my friends and, and things like that. But yeah, over the years, it did change. Absolutely changed. And what did you notice about it that was different? I would have to buy more of it uh, to get the same high. I it would it was uh, did not last as long. It um, it was much more intense. Um, it, um, um, uh, you craved it more in some cases uh, because you didn't have this like sustained high that you would have back in the day, back when they called it uh, biker meth. Right, that's right. And yeah. that's what his article talked about. It used to be yeah. biker meth and people would function on this stuff yeah. and truckers yeah. would use it. And yeah. I'm not saying go out and find some good meth and use it. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that you can find it anymore. I mean, you work in addiction. Does yep. that meth even exist anymore? Not anymore. It's, it's, um, it's closer to what they, I guess they call, uh, bath salts now. It's, uh, uh, it's highly, highly addictive. Uh, it's getting mixed now with fentanyl. It's getting, um, it's, it's dirty basically. Um, I eventually became an IV user and anything like that, uh, is, is much more dangerous. Um, and, uh, I'm sure now was a trank is probably going to be eventually mixed into that too. So is is fentanyl in the meth supply as far as you know in the Pacific Northwest? Uh, yes, uh, my dealings with uh, some of the people that I work with uh, personally in my uh, job, uh, I've had several um, only meth users. They only use meth. They are only uh, stimulant users, um, getting their supply mixed with fentanyl and they're getting opiate uh, withdrawals and it's something they've never had to deal with it's something that's extremely scary to them because they there's a uh, meth heads and um, uh, opioid uh, users typically don't mix that often right uh, they it's, really it's don't depressants and stimulants right. and people on meth tend, they want some energy they don't want to yeah. nod out yeah we, we'd somewhat make fun of our heroin users and, and friends that were, did that and and we there are obviously people that use both use them both at the same time things like that speedball or yeah. something if you yeah. will yeah. Yeah. that's pretty uncommon though that's not that's more hardcore, is that, it not? Yeah, that's pretty hardcore. It's kind of in-stage <laughs> drug addiction stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, it scares a person who exclusively do, does meth. That's something... Uh, overdoses in meth are hard as far as death. I mean, there's different types of overdose, but cardiac arrest while using meth use is very, very low, typically. As opposed to death from fentanyl. fentanyl and opiates, yeah. Which depresses your, your system. Respiratory and just everything. not breathing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so how did you, tell us about the day that you met uh, Andrea Suarez from WeHeart Seattle. Well, 
uh, met her a couple of times, um, but the, she came out to do kind of a litter pick, and because she, I think she was coming out to check it out first. I was staying at a park called Miller Park in Seattle, and um, I just happened to be part of a, somewhat of a mini collective there that we would help feed other homeless people. Basically, we were homeless, but we ran a kitchen uh, that was kind of parked outside of this park, and she had come by to kind of peruse the park and, and figure out the areas she was going to clean up, asking for help and things. And she came to me and, you know, we started talking and uh, she had rest, recognized me actually from my restaurant days. I worked oh as, my a, gosh. as a chef and bartender and, and stuff. And she had recognized me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I and, didn't know this piece of it. Oh, that's so crazy. Um, which, I, which blew me away because, you know, I, for a person that to recognize. That was your old life. Yeah. I don't yeah. forget yeah. A good talk, cocktail. And, then <laughs> 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 and that right there instantly, you know, like that made her different right right there from any other aid worker, any other person. Because she knew you as a person. Exactly. And she knew your story, your, at least your former life story. Yeah, yeah. And saw where I was at this moment, dirty, in a park, you know, uh, I wasn't all flailed out like a lot of my you know, compadres right. would have been, but I, she could talk to me. We interacted. She was telling me about some of the problems that she was having and some of the, uh, issues she was dealing with. And so when she came back out and, and I helped clean up and I think I was kind of like off the side of it, but, um, we had a big snowstorm uh, about two months after that. And, uh, Andrea was one of the very, very few, I'd say aid workers that came out to check on people to see how they were doing. And these tents that had collapsed and, and, you know, I'm sure some people got hurt very badly. And she came in to, are you ready to get out of here? And I said, yes. And within 24 hours, uh, had, um, uh, basically, you know, gave me a timeline when she was going to be there. We, I met with a, another shelter, uh, Union Gospel Mission, that wasn't going to be for me. Uh, she gave and me this other option. why was that not for you? Um, they were a lot stricter. They are faith-based. Uh, they expect you to do certain things. Uh, at the time, I was a, a smoker. Uh, you can't smoke there. Um, um, very intensive 30-day lockout, uh, uh, that type of stuff. That What's wasn't, a 30-day lockout? Um, where you can't leave the facility. Uh, if you do, you're out of that program. Uh, you're going to church clinic or chapel every single day, that type of thing. That wasn't for me. That It works for some people. Um, my addictions were not that heavy to where I couldn't just not. If I was out of the situation, I didn't need it. Uh, type of situation so so when we earlier we were all at an event that together that you two spoke at and you talked about how you needed Patrick you talked about how you needed structure because my question there were some people in the room that that sort of had an idea or, or at least had heard because this is a popular idea in Portland and I'm sure you've heard it a billion times working in this industry Patrick that hey everybody just needs a house I mean this is the idea the governor's peddling right Everybody just needs a house, and then we can solve this addiction crisis. We can get them stable enough. And what you said was that what you needed was structure and a purpose, right. and that a house wouldn't have given you that. That is correct. I, if I would have been given the opportunity to move into, say, a house situation, I wasn't stabilized yet in my life alone to be able to do that. I, I needed three four months of 
intense of just working at Bybee Lakes Hope Center in, in their in their program itself, uh, going to classes, meeting people that were sober, uh, and building relationships and, and uh, volunteering there and, and doing all the different things. Then I got a job and and um, you know did that for a while, and then eventually was offered the job at Bybee Lakes Hope Center. And so I lived at Bybee Lakes Hope Center uh, as a participant as a staff member um, uh, for over a year. Uh, and, he, and it took me personally a year to get to a point to where I could get be on my own in housing. And that was a personal choice. I probably could have moved out several times prior to that, but I wasn't ready yet. How, how was it for you getting off of this P2P math? I've heard that's insanely difficult. Um, not so bad for me. By the time Andrea came into my picture, I had kind of somewhat, if it was around me, I would do it, but it wasn't something I was actively seeking. I was trying to get away from it. So for my story, it was a little bit different uh, itself. Um, so I, did Bybee help you in the sense, I mean, one of the criticisms about it is that it's not downtown. Right. And so it's not surrounded by services. Right. And so did it help you to be at Bybee Lakes, which is away from downtown and all the drug pushing? Yep. And if, if uh, like I said, I was a product of my environment, whatever the environment I was in, I would be good at it. <laughs> uh, so I was a, a good drug user if I was in a drug environment that it just kind of came to me. Um, I, once I was away from it, once those influences were not there, that, that was the best thing absolutely for me. And I would venture out, they had, you know, they have a, a bike loan program at Bybee uh, once you're in the reentry program. So I'd just go ride a bike. And it was a new city to me, so I didn't know where anything was. Right, because you yeah. had been from Seattle. Yeah. And then, Andrea, how did you end up getting Patrick hooked in with Bybee Lakes? And how did you, I mean, I know Union Gospel didn't sound like the best p- place for him, but how did you both decide... Bybee Lakes might be obviously it was a perfect fit. Yep, I'm really proud of you, Patrick. And, oh, thank you, Andrew. and happy birthday! Happy it's your birthday, birthday today. <laughs> happy birthday, Patrick, and thank you for spending it with us. Well, today marks my three-year anniversary. It's really special to be here today. Actually, oh my gosh, um, congratulations! Yeah, tomorrow, with We Heart, with We Heart, we I came home. Um, from a walk in Seattle three years ago to the day, and I sent a video to my friends, which I'll be putting out on social media this afternoon, describing this idea of activating all 730-something thousand Seattleites to get involved um, with the community, starting with cleanups. Um, So here we are. Um, The first 90 days, I learned about all the different services, like where we're learning as a, as a self-taught outreach worker and Bybee Lakes Hope Center was one of the agencies that I had learned about that was here in Portland and that it was something different than everything else that I was learning about, which were all very low barrier, um, chaotic. People Tell us like, what low barrier means for people who don't know. Low barrier meaning you don't have to have ID, you don't have to say who you are, you can be Mickey Mouse one day, Donald Duck the next, um, drugs, you don't have to pass any kind of UA, it's certainly free, it's usually congregate. They are getting better in that they're 24-7 enhanced, meaning you can go back to the same bed every night. Um, no, no structure, no accountability, no programming, it's just a place to sleep and shower and maybe get a meal, and they have a high turnover rate for that reason. Um, there is low barrier housing out there as well, 
that is very chaotic for people to live in. And I'm finding now here three years later, I can talk about the abandonment rate that those apartments have. Talk about what, what does abandonment rate mean and what's going on there? People just would rather live in a tent, in a green space, in a park, on a sidewalk, in the woods, alone, than coexist with others who are facing a variety of substance abuse disorders, untreated psychiatric care. It's very chaotic when you have your own chaos as well. And so you're, it's a mixed bag of chaos. Right. How do you ever, I mean, that state, let's get them stable and they can get clean and get a job argument kind of falls away when you visit some of these no barrier places and you see how chaotic they are. They might, it might as well be a congregant tent situation. It's worse. Um, I've been inside the permanent worse. housing even that are room after room after room are turned into trap rooms with um, various sex trade operations going on, open air use of fentanyl indoors in the hallways and the bathrooms, no security, unlocked doors, squalid living conditions, roach infested apartments, um, broken plumbing, broken appliances, revolving case management, revolving uh, director level because the unintended consequences of low barrier are that they're hard to staff. There's no requirement uh, for any kind of structure or programming, which is what Patrick talked about being a key to his success. Um, there's murders indoors, there's overdoses indoors, just as equal. And I always say, you know, camping can and is a multi-billion dollar industry and people who are choosing to live outside, I think, make the most of it, most of it as well. And it's... Uh, do you agree with that, Patrick? Um, I do. Um, I've seen this firsthand. Um, I also work with several people outside of Ivy that I've worked with case management that, that I still work with on occasion. And um, a couple of the buildings that I've been at, there's open use, they're, they're very low barrier, they're, you know, the structure is, they're trying to let these people be autonomous, but without the accountability part of it, um, they try and support them any way they can. I, I think they're doing the best of what the model's built on, but the model isn't really the most efficient thing, I think, in helping people. What is the accountability part, and what what is the accountability, let's say, at Bybee Lakes, where you are? So, accountability is me uh, working directly with the person. And then, uh, at least at Bybee Lakes, for our reentry program itself, is our UAs uh, structure. They have to attend classes. Uh, so, you're in classes. analysis. Yeah. Uh, Which classes do they, are there specific classes they need to attend? Um, so there are ones that we provide ourselves that uh, Bybee Lakes Help Center or Helping Hands, our parent organization, provides. And, and uh, they're required to go to two of those. Uh, and once a process meeting, that's like a whole house meeting uh, where we give them information. They give us information, that type of thing. And then we have another class, and it could be a class on effective communication. It could be a banking class. It could be a housing resource class. So that's one of the ones we require them to attend. Everything else, they pick and choose themselves, whether it's NAAA, uh, art classes, uh, computer lab. Um, we have gardening classes. We have you know, uh, life skills classes, things like that. And those they can pick and choose. But they are required to go to a certain amount of them. Um, there's also the requirement of volunteering, uh, whether on-site at our location or off-site. We really promote actually off-site. And um, so those types of checks and balances somewhat are there. 
Um, eventually, people get to the point where they don't need that anymore, and they can, like I did. You know, I, I could move out into my own uh, world. I have a structure. I have I have uh, skills that I've learned. Um, I somewhat self police myself at that level, and then eventually, you know, that's what we're hoping people are going to be self reliant, self sustainable. Uh, but I personally think people need that structure, you know, at first. And, and you're saying that you did. I did, for sure. So, Andrea, tell us about how you ended up getting Patrick from Seattle to Bybee. We had built trust at that point and had a pre, as it turned out, existing relationship <laughs> of some sort when you were employed, which was a small world. Um, but, yeah, we just outlined a couple different options and did an assessment. He did a phone interview with the intake manager at Bybee, and the next day mm-hmm. I drove him down. And in your car yourself. Yeah, yeah. we have a little waiver um, so that we can transport people and that there's, we can take their property and we have permission to tell stories and it's good to amplify the work we do to help raise awareness and raise working models. Um, we are assertive. I mean, I'm, I think consistency, daily intensive outreach in a hyper-local area was a very early on a model that it was very effective and still is. It's the consistency of going back over and over again and providing waste management as a form of harm reduction, which is something that mutual aid efforts were not doing. And there was a lot of hamburgers, a lot of sandwiches, a lot of tent side bags of clothing and things that certainly people need to a certain extent. Lots of socks, lots of <laughs> lots of socks. But we're really socks and lasagnas. <laughs> yes. We're really, really cookies, proud. like you said, cookies. And I mean I remember meeting um, Joe who ran Rock Bottom Kitchen mm-hmm. at Miller Park. And he was like, I just can't believe all these people drop off this food. They're treating us like like this is some kind of a trough. Mm-hmm. And and doesn't that help create all this garbage that we heard mm-hmm. Seattle ends up picking up anyway? Well, like it's food waste. It's packaging waste. it's And a lot of it goes uneaten, does it not? Well, it becomes rat food. Yeah. And Miller Park was the fateful location, I call it destiny, where some of what was and still is to a degree opposition of mine that saw me as a new character out in the outreach world. You know, who are you? What are you doing? I'm like, my name is Andrea. I have this little organization called We Heart. And that um, became threatening to them for some reason. But I said, well, I kind of feel like you're enabling people to just stay here and barely Mm -hmm. make it. And the harm reduction model in theory, looking back now three years, I see it as Um, really what's become treating people like hospice patients, barely keeping them alive until they die, you know? And I think we need to work in a more incremental, right now, state of emergency effort to get people off the drugs because this is killing people at a higher rate than ever before. The drugs are illicit, they're more dangerous, they're made up of who knows what. And um, our model of outreach is intervention forward using motivational interviewing to work people through their ambivalence. You know, Patrick talked a lot about, you know, I was just there. I was just stuck. I had just sort of, I'm like a product of my environment, you know, and I hear this over and over and over again that nobody's asked me if I wanted to go home. No one's asked me if I wanted to actually reconnect with family or if I wanted treatment, like, no, I can't get arrested for my warrants. And so I sit here and languish and I'm barely keeping alive through enablement, which is free pipes and foil and straws and needles back in the day. Um, And there's nothing humane about approaching this crisis in that way. And it's time to 
iterate harm reduction to include assertive outreach that offers a pathway towards sobriety and housing with programming like Bybee and a pathway towards employment. Employment is a virtue, working's a virtue. It's the fastest way to housing. Patrick now has a house, he has roommates, he has reached a point of self-sufficiency. And until we get out of the housing first, harm reduction is the only way to end this crisis. We're never gonna see the end of it because then you will just address inflow. Well, free housing for life in Portland, Oregon, Seattle, how do you manage the inflow of... I mean, we couldn't afford to do it even if we wanted to. We couldn't afford to. It's a pipe dream. And what we need is individualized boots on the ground outreach for every single person there in need and work them through their ambivalence and, and connect them to the services that they need on an individualized basis. Sometimes it's easy as, yeah, I can go back home. I've just been, you know kicking the can down the road about calling my mom, calling whoever, getting back together, giving up my addiction to go home. And I, I love those stories because I think family first should be the discussion in the headline, not housing first. Talk about that because you've been able to reunite people with their families. It's incredible. Um, Jonathan Cho just followed a gal, Kaylee Gordon, who we met, both met in the woods about a year ago. She became completely unrecognizable on the streets through her methamphetamine mixed with opioid addiction, you know, scabs, demonic behavior. Um, her family saw one of Jonathan's um, posts that uh, featured her, and I think within about 30 days, uh, she's been reunited with family. She's back in Wyoming with her cousins, and there's these, like, reuni reunion photos that just explode your heart. And so family first treatment first, programming first, housing ready first, meet people where they're at once they're there, once they're off the street and into something more stable, now we can start to work on, you know, a variety of, of uh, treatment that can help this person reach self-sufficiency. But um, on a weekly basis, you know, I have a lot of phone numbers in my phone for moms and aunties and children who are happy to talk to their sons and daughters again. So we really, really push re reunions with families as much as possible. I think and continued contact also is very, very important. So one of the things with, with Andrea is that she met me, she knew where I was at at that time, and she kept on trying to find me and eventually found me again and reconnected with me. Uh, and a couple How other did you people. find him, Andrea? We had daily intensive outreach efforts at Miller Park. We go to the same place every day, weekly, with a group of volunteers and built and established those relationships. Mm -hmm. And the consistency, I think, is really key. Uh, yes. Young lady, Allie, who was living in a greenbelt in Seattle uh, just about 45 days ago, she writes to us now that she's through treatment and is expected to deliver a baby girl here in the next seven months. She said, hearing your voices was like, I'll never forget hearing Tim's voice. I, I, the consistency of, is that Tim's voice? Is that the people that said that they could help me? They're here again. And it's sad that they're shocked to hear the same voice again. And, you know, there's a lot of money that's pouring into the social services um, industry. And we would just love to encourage people to 
uh, have that hyper local daily intensive outreach and I think the only time that we do see that is when there's an impending sweep yeah. and there's a lot of resources that come out for a few days and try to get people triaged but um, if that, I had that definitely was the case with me a couple of times where you saw all the aid workers come out like within a week and then everyone knew, oh, they're going to sweep us. And then you had to move somewhere. And I would go back to that particular park because they had showers nearby. And so and I could get clean and, and things. So that's why I kept on kind of going back to that same area. Um, but Andrea would come out and she would come out and she would come out. And with me, it only took her coming out a couple of times for me to go. Um, um, Bybee's also doing, we have outreach now. And, and Michael, uh, our outreach uh, specialist, is that's his key, is he goes out every single day and he talks to the same people. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And if it's not Bybee, it's somewhere else. It's Hooper Detox. It it's, uh, could be another program. We're not the only option. Uh, everything. And that's the thing is that. What are the programs that you like here in Portland? Because we do, it seems like we've got a billion of these programs. Y'all are talking right. about these no barrier. You know, we just opened up that pod site over by Cleveland High School in Southeast Portland. My understanding is that's low barrier. So tell us what some good programs like Bybee. I know about Hooper. I know about Fora Health. Mm-hmm. Where, what are the other good programs that people should donate to point to if people want resources or call if they have questions um one that's kind of similar to Bybee's blanche house uh it's a work program uh so blanche has been feeding the homeless population for years and uh they have a men's program there and for people who have not worked in a very long time this is a really good way to and are maybe not ready to work yet um, so for three months, you help serve the homeless population in, in downtown. You know, people come in, they, uh, they do breakfast, lunch, dinner, and you get to stay there um, uh, in a, um, a two-man room. And for three months, that's what you do. You, you serve. You, you give back uh, within that program. And then after three months, they, they uh, assist you with uh, finding employment. And you can stay there until you can save up money and get out on your own. I, I'm a big fan of that program. It's getting those people who are ready to move up and beyond. You're um, saying that program itself is successful. It is, yeah. Uh, I've actually met some. There's a couple of baby employees who came through that program. Um, and so, like anything, you have to be ready. Or if they want to be out of that area completely, they'd go out to, like, the farm or something. Are there any other programs that you like that are similar that have data and results? Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. see, isn't that a problem? It is. That is a bit of a problem right there. I mean, Portland is really suffering, and we have this huge homelessness and drug addiction and mental health epidemic. Mm -hmm. And yet, we can only think of two programs that work as we sit here today. And you're plugged into the industry. You literally work for the industry. I I mean, there's, there's other religious-based programs that work really well, but it, that, it has to be for that individual. Uh, of Shepherd, course. Shepherd's Door for Women and Children, that's a, that's a wonderful program. There's a place called Our Father's House, Our Father's that, I, House. Yeah, that yeah. I think is good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of those work, um, but they are religiously funded. Salvation Army yeah. can have, yeah. They last time I looked, had incredible data, but mm-hmm. you're, you're right, it doesn't work for everybody. Right. It's the what public-funded programs are yeah. crushing it right now. And there are none. And that's the problem, is that we need to publicly fund 
recovery-oriented housing that has structure, discipline, and accountability to it. And that is exact opposite of what the Housing First policy makers intended for. Yeah. And we're, it's time, the experiment is over. The fruit has expired. <laughs> we need to move on to funding, at least adding it to the bag of options that recovery-oriented housing is part of that. The halfway houses, the entrepreneurs mm-hmm. that are buying homes and renting community mm-hmm. housing. Pine Street housing is one. I love yeah. Pine Street housing. Yeah. I've actually written a couple checks to them yeah. for people who were um, clean and sober and ready to share a house with a group of men. Yeah. We have Weldworks in Seattle, um, Pioneer Human Services, uh, Battlefield Addiction. There's a ton of these halfway houses that are out there that don't get the private, excuse me, they don't get the public funded funding because they don't have a housing first approach because they require you to be clean and sober. Another, and another big one's uh, Iron Tribe uh, mm-hmm. housing. That's a really good one. I actually know several people that are in that program and that's men and women. So it's not just. And do um, you know what the monthly fee is? What do they have to pay for rent? Uh, I, I think it depends on the house mm-hmm. and the situation. So it could be anywhere from $500 to right. $1,000. So again, not free housing. Not free housing. But there no. are agencies like We Heart Seattle yeah. or a church group or family or other rental assistant agencies right. that could support that 90-day rent so that person can reach mm-hmm. some stabilization if they haven't already. Typically, they have at that point, And then they'll get a job. Yeah. And there's a job out there for everybody. And um, well, there certainly is in Portland. I yeah. mean, every, every I don't know about Seattle, but Patrick, you you help connect people with yeah, resources. I do. I do. And employment. All yes, that. and employment. Yeah. And so I, I don't know what I'm curious about your experience because every restaurant owner, every restaurant mm-hmm. worker that I'm hearing from is that is they're saying they are desperate for yeah, people and absolutely. they're paying a lot more than minimum wage. I mean. The, these people are paying like seventeen to twenty-five dollars mm-hmm. an hour to have somebody wash dishes or bring a pizza to a table. There, there's great programs that they don't have training uh, in the culinary arts. Uh, Stone Soup, wonderful program. Uh, it's a culinary training program. You actually get paid twenty-five hundred dollars uh, at the end of that program if you successfully complete it, and uh, that gives you the skills you need immediately. I went through a similar program in Seattle called Fair Start. And uh, it's how I got into cooking. It's how I got in, into that. I had jobs. I had jobs before I even graduated that program. So, Patrick, are you able to help? Are you able to actually get people employment at Bybee Lakes? Are you are, are are you running into problems? I mean, my understanding is there there are places that want to hire people. I, I if it, if I have a person. Uh, because of where we're at, we're more in a warehouse district. We are a little sure. farther away from things. Um, I every single person that's ever come to me that needed a job, that applied for a job in an, in that area got the job. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, every they, single person yeah. got the job. Yeah. I mean, it was up to them if they kept the job or that's if right. they maintained it because or whatever. That's about accountability, right? right. And right. that's about actions have consequences and mm-hmm. that's how the rest of us live our lives right if we don't perform we're fired right and right. so that's it's it's training people to learn how to live mm-hmm. in society again right yeah. to learn how to live life which yeah. is really yeah. hard yeah adulting is very hard <laughs> yeah i mean life life is hard and it's going to throw yeah. 
tons of boulders your way and how do we cope with that without substances and did you find the by be programming to assist with that? I, I did. It is a lot more self-driven. We are very about giving people enough freedom to choose the classes they want to choose, the different things. We do actually have on-site uh, uh, mental health and addiction treatment through Mind Solutions, or a separate organization that's in-house. Uh, so we now can offer that. Uh, we, we didn't before. Uh, this is, you know, we've been working with them for close to a year now and it's, it's working out really really good and okay Andrea so when people heard that you were coming on the show I got all these questions about what is going on with we heart how has it grown since you last came on um, what does your board look like where does your funding come from and what is going on with you personally I know, and you can start wherever you want. But I, I mean, they ran the gamut from um, we heart structure and organization and the way you've grown that to just sort of, hey, what's Andrea up to? Yeah, no, grassroots all the way. Um, individual contributors make up 54% of our donations. We're really proud of that. Uh, you mentioned we got a big six-figure check uh, through word of mouth. That is true. I still consider that donation an individual contributor. But uh Lifetime earnings are somewhere right beneath 1.5 million. Um, we don't run galas. We're not doing big fundraisers. We do it very, uh, you know, individual based on like maybe a time of year. But the uh, before and afters of our trash picks and the storytelling of the now about 200 people we've helped get off the streets, like Patrick, um, and using social media, media. 200 people. Mm-hmm. And how many pounds of trash have you picked up? We are going to reach a million pounds of trash removed by the end of September, and this is our three-year anniversary uh, tomorrow. Uh, with not bulldozers, not conveyor equipment, not commercial grade uh, vehicles or dump trucks, but with barbecue tongs, little red wagons, and a lot of elbow grease from our volunteer-led um, coalition, which is apolitical. Um, it is voting season, and we're going to use our platform uh, here this voting cycle to get out the vote and engage our volunteers to come party with us and, and uh, at different restaurants and cafes and in parks and, and just really encourage people to get out and vote. I think voting, uh, the voting turnout is a crisis, and we really don't know how our community truly feels because we're not out there voting. And so I think there's a lot of fringe activity and a lot of uh, people on both sides that are really um, sort of overpowering what I, I feel is a common sense, reasonable, uh, middle of the ground approach to solving a lot of our problems that we see in our city. So my shout out is to um, get out the vote and do everything we can, a, a call to action to your audience to tell 10 of your friends to get out and vote and they'll tell 10 friends and we really need to amplify how important it is to vote. I think as a society, we would be less divided if we had a more equal balance of people having a say-so. We have a a public safety crisis, we have a homeless crisis, we have an addiction crisis, staffing crisis, all of this ecosystem. I mean, homicides are up. We have like 50 now in Seattle. Gunshots are all night long. Uh, the open-air drug scenes are running our city streets day and night. A um, lot of it's voter education, I've found, too. People will say, I mean, they will literally just 
email me and say, when is your election episode coming out and who are we supposed to be voting for to change Portland? Because they don't have time to read a phone book size voting guide. And even then, deciphering who is going to be a we heart ally and who is going to be a housing first person that's perpetuating this issue, that's really difficult to know. These voter guides are really opaque. Um, so I think also just getting the word out about things like We Heart Seattle is really important. Getting the word out about people like Andrea, people at Bybee Lakes Hope Center like Patrick. Um, and Patrick, Bybee Lakes does tours, right? Yes. So you can, as a taxpayer, can't you just call up and say, hey, could I get a tour of Bybee Lakes? Yeah, they can uh, either contact us directly through our main line. Uh, they can contact me personally. You know, um, and I can give them a tour, and yeah, not a problem. So I think we tell people to vote, but we also tell people about We Heart Seattle. We also tell people about Bybee Lakes so that they understand what the root of the problem is. Because Andrea, at this event we were at, I heard you talking about how there's there's all these programs out there to deal with things that are not the root cause of homelessness. like. They're not dealing with addiction. They're not dealing with the structure that Patrick talked about. They're not giving people a sense of purpose. What I know is my practical experience. Um, here I am three years later, and I know that I've housed a lot of people, and they're back out on the streets, or they keep their housing, and their activity is still out on the sidewalk, or in the camps, or in the parks, or under the underpasses. There's no follow-up for all these well-intended programs, and that's why it never seems to get better. People still go out. They still have to steal or turn tricks for dope. And I have a client, for example, who's in housing for life for $25 a month, and he became a dealer. He's like, I got a locked door, you know, <laughs> went a completely different direction. And so I think until we have a real policy shift in what housing is for people, we are devolving humankind. People, we have to give people a hand up, empowerment, programming to reach self-sufficiency and we need to elect leaders that are more balanced in the housing not first approach but housing and like housing and programming housing and family reunion housing and where can you reach self-sufficiency and to really study you know who's running for what positions that are going to challenge what seems to me to be a failed approach. It, the experiment is over and people are dying at a higher rate than ever. Uh, crimes up, homicides are up. Four people are certainly dying in King County per day of overdose deaths. A uh, hundred plus overdose uh, reversals are uh, accounted for by our first responders a week in Seattle. That doesn't include peer-to-peer -peer reversals that we don't uh, get a statistic on. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm all about treatment first, family first, and we use the trash cleans as a direct action strategy to influence public opinion on what is working and what is not. So if you're unsure about what might be working or not, you might actually volunteer at Bybee, volunteer with your local favorite nonprofit. Can people do this, Patrick? Yes, can they can. Can anybody volunteer at Bybee, and how do they do that? Um, yes. Um, 
Anybody can volunteer. Uh, we give a volunteer training, basically. Um, they can, How often do you do those? Um, it is more of a contact us, and if there's a need and there's a space, uh, okay, then that's kind of how is that flows. Is there a need in a space, or does there it just always, depend on the day? Um, I think it's more depending on the situation, okay. uh, whether that's helping run a class or helping serve food. or. So or, it depends on what your talent is and right, what you're interested exactly. in doing. That's often the case, yes. Okay, so you, what you want to know at Bybee Lakes, Patrick, is what are people willing to give? What, what's their yeah. educational background? What, how did they get interested in Bybee Lakes and in the homelessness crisis and the addiction crisis? And, and of course, mental health. And then what are their gifts in those areas? What can they do to enhance Bybee Lakes? And you'll, you, if you can, you'll find a way to slot them in. Right. So we currently have a curriculum at Bybee of 154 classes per month. Um, wow. And that's the type of volunteer work we're looking for people to help engage in. Engage having those volunteers come in and meet directly with our people and help them through life. Through, um, uh, We have a, a group of little old ladies that come in and they do this thing called the talking jar. And it's the cutest thing. You'll have all these, you know, people just in the room. And there's this little group of little old ladies, you know, pulling little topics out of a jar to talk about for that hour type of thing. And I love that. And Patrick, you said at this event we were at that you're housing a lot of seniors at Bybee. Yes. Can you talk about this, please? Because I think people do not understand this phenomenon. So that's the other side. We're talking about addictions. We're yes. talking about street-level yes. crimes. We're talking about fentanyl. There's an entire population at Bybee. That's, that's never been the case. They have had a family situation uh, where they were living with their their relative or a cousin or their husband who happened to die. Uh, our largest population are elderly women. Uh, That's currently. your largest population of baby. Yeah. One of our largest populations is elderly women. How do they, they learn to kick and scream for funding from taxpayer dollars? Right. right. And you were just recently funded by the county, but there was a question about whether that was going to happen. Yeah. Um, that that's the part that scares me the most because these are people who are on a very fixed income who that income is never going to increase unless it's a, a you know a cola or something like that and they there's not enough housing for them in a sense there's not enough of that low income housing they're on wait lists that are now uh, two to five years to get into low income housing that they can afford um, and still get by and they're waiting. They're, they're at Bybee waiting to get into housing. So is that, I'm trying to understand this. Is our focus then in Multnomah County on these no barrier situations that would be, I think, unsafe for right. an older lady? Yeah. That's, and that's the issue. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're a 70-year-old woman who's vulnerable, perhaps physically frail, mm -hmm. you're not going to do well at that pod mm -hmm. that's being run by Urban Alchemy in Southeast Portland. Right, right. And that's a chaotic situation that really nobody, frankly, that's just my personal opinion, should be in. But um, if that's our focus, then, yeah, these elderly people are left out in the cold. Right. And the reason we have a lot of elderly is Bybee is safe. We are a safe location. We're secured. We're away from everything. Uh, we're conducive. That it gives some of our elderly people things to do. They go to classes. They they interact. There's, it's a it's a community there. Um, uh, I I have my ladies who do the coffee every morning. There's like six of them. They all hang out at the end of the dining hall table and just talk. 
and that's a big part of their day. And then they go to classes, or they go and they go and volunteer, or they do different things. And um, um, and those are the ones I worry about the most uh, when it comes down to the low barrier stuff. For everyone that's got into Bybee, there's a bunch that are in shelters, and even the shelter systems, like uh, organizations like TPI. Um, uh, they're changing their models too. They are, they do have a shelter that's for women that you get UAID that you have to be sober to be at now. You know, uh, I, I get many of our people into those, you know, the ones that maybe by isn't the best fit for them or something like that. Uh, they, they, okay. they can't do the classes or the volunteering. And, so and you stuff. will help people that maybe are not successful at Bybee. You Absolutely. can still help them go some, get somewhere. That is my actually number one part of my job is actually uh, finding other resources, other locations, other places for other people to go to. If Bybee is not a good fit, we do offer the 30-day shelter where they figure us out. And no commitments, no reentry program, no classes or volunteer requirements. And they figure us out, we figure them out, and then if they want to join the reentry, they do, if they're a good fit for our program. And what I love about that shelter, 30-day shelter that you offer, it used to only be, I think, four days. Yeah. And that's a great example where Bybee iterated as well to be better. And yeah. I'm seeing that needle moving across other providers as well that... It can't just be a silver bullet fix. Yeah. We've got to be flexible. We have to have a lot of options. The money needs to be spread out, whether it's faith-based or intervention forward, clean no. and sober living or low barrier. Let there be a mixed bag, but to only have low barrier and have that first housing first be the only, only place only that publicly all funded. the money goes yeah. is is not fair, and it, I think it's doing a detriment to really helping people who are ready. And I say to people who, you know, aren't ready, and you actually said that a lot today, Patrick, is, well, you have to be ready. But I've been up against it with people who I've met, and it, talked to them for a week, and the second week, and the third week, and they became ready. Yeah. It's through motivational interviewing and assertive outreach with treatment-first solutions, mm -hmm. people will work through their ambivalence and... They give up on themselves. They've been gaslit to believe that it, there is not a pathway out. They've gaslit themselves to believe that I'll just be right back out here, and I don't want to be back out here. It's harder to go get clean and then to return, and we try to give them a path out that now includes private-funded recovery housing because there is yeah. no free housing Right. that's humane. Yeah. Andrea, what's going on with you personally? People want to know if you still have your corporate job. Are you doing We Heart Seattle full time? Does We Heart Seattle have a staff? What's happening in your world? Yeah, well, three years ago, I did not intend to be a 501c3 or have a, an incredible executive level board of directors. Um, we have people that have come from, you know, Microsoft, uh, global merger and acquisition attorneys. Uh, Michael Schellenberger sits on our board, who's a uh, uh, New York Times best author and uh, political and environmental activist. Um, and uh, we have a, exactly one other outreach worker out there that's on the daily getting people indoors. Um, and 9,000 registered volunteer hours. And that's a lot, of, a lot of bodies and a lot of effort for free. And so we're really proud of the fact that we uh, have saved at least the city of Seattle, what we believe is north of $20 million in taxpayer services. 
Um, right, because you, my understanding is you also paid to dispose of this trash out of your pocket. For the most part, we're starting to work a little bit more closely with Seattle Public Utilities where we can. Um, but yeah, we rent trucks and rent dumpsters and pay for our dump fees through our private donations. We use our private donations to help pay for recovery-oriented housing. We've employed over 25 people through Second Chance Employer Uplift Northwest, which is low barrier in that they can have a criminal background, they don't have to pass a UA, but it gives them a stepping stone towards, you know, again, self-sufficiency. So we really like working with that organization to employ people to come out and help us pick litter and lead what are typically like corporate serve days, um, faith-based serve days. We work with Seattle Municipal Courts to use our platform for people to volunteer to work off their court fines and fees. So really? We're really oh, proud, that's great. Really proud of that. Um, one by one, I think we de-institutionalize people just a little bit every day when we're out there working, picking up trash, showered, clean, you know, providing a model for people who are ambivalent to their situation to to join our team. And that is the most rewarding part of our work is that full circle people come and call us when they're out of jail or out of detox and say, hey, I, I wanna come volunteer for WeHeart. I really like what you guys got going on. And because of our basic need stipend program, we provide $25 gift cards to people who are living rough that participate in our cleans. And so a lot of people say, well, why don't the homeless help you clean? I'm like, they do. Well, doesn't the trash come back? And I'm like, of course it does to some degree. Trash is constant. We all take our trash out weekly. So we just provide a more dignified you know, program for them to feel a part of our community, to pick up some life skills. Fred Meyer and Kroger just gave us $10,000 in $25 gift card stipends. And so we're really proud of that corporate relationship. Um, Congratulations. This is huge. This is so different than when you last came in and we were talking about growing We Heart Seattle. It's become such a piece of this. It's woven into the city's fabric in a way that I remember thinking we were all kind of wondering, like, is the city is the city going to get it? Are people going to get it? Are they going to join this? And you've had all these people who've had these epiphanies. I watched it at this event that we were all at. I watched you and Patrick, Andrea, talk to people at this event about the root causes of homelessness. And they listen to you and they listen to Patrick and Patrick's story about why a, an apartment or a house wouldn't have helped him. And you could see the lights go on. Yeah. It's amazing um, what you learn when your boots on the ground and bring that practical experience that's not driven by ideology, it's not driven by a six-figure education, <laughs> um, with social uh, social worker, master of social worker, you know, those guys do, do you, but unfortunately much of the education is so ideologically driven that they come out with a housing first, harm reduction theory um, under their belt and that's like the only thing they'll approach outreach with and I've had the county King County um, say to me you'll you'll never get in in anywhere with the government because you're you're just not housing first I'm I like, think they were on the record saying that I'm like I'm not it's, housing first works for some people that, um, that was the same also with Bybee Lake Soap Center and Helping Hands right. the, the county and the city would not even the state would they not wouldn't touch, touch it right and so yeah. Jordan Schnitzer yeah. had to in, do all of the initial funding and the startup yeah. and everything. It, that was all privately done, yeah. was it not, yeah. initially? And yeah. then it took a while to get this buy-in and get these people on board, and now it's one of the few programs that actually works. Yeah. And we still can't get the darn thing 
funded and without a fair amount of hand-wringing. Right. Yeah. Since we last were here, you, of course, know we co-founded North America Recovers. Yeah, and I have to thank you for that, Andrea, because pe- people know that I'm part of North America Recovers. You can find us at NorthAmericaRecovers.org, and the only reason I am is because of Andrea, and I really appreciate that. It really cha- it ch- helped change my life, and it gave me a network of people to talk to and to learn from that has really helped broaden my perspectives and my horizons about the root causes of homelessness and addiction and mental illness. And I, they've a lot of them have come on this podcast to talk about their experiences. So thank you. you feel, you're welcome. And, it, and we're not alone, right? Uh, we I met Michael Schellenberger uh, down in Berkeley Hills. I went to his house and within about 15 minutes, uh, we were BFFs and decided to throw a weekend in Seattle to bring like-minded grassroots organizations that were noisy and outspoken countering the housing first um, narrative and to a degree it's housing and, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with more housing, uh, affordable housing for people who can pay that rent, you know, but for people who can't be self-sufficient, you know, we have to have housing contingent after there's treatment and after there's recovery. So our resolution that landed as a result of that three-day retreat is prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery. And that's the four pillars of success that the Albertans and uh, the Netherlands have adopted, which is a, you know, intervention forward um, recovery capital system that includes police, includes social workers, Includes treatment and to some degree safe supply, but the misunderstanding is it comes with a, a bit of a carrot and a stick. You have to work your way towards sobriety and self-sufficiency. And they stigmatize drug addiction in the Netherlands. Like it's like drugs are bad. You know, we stigmatize, you know, not wearing your seatbelt, click it or ticket, give a hoot, don't pollute, don't beat your wife. Um, don't smoke within 30. <laughs> it sounds simple, but don't smoke within 30, you know, feet of a building. I would like to stigmatize that we no longer walk by trash and we no longer walk by somebody that's slumped over in your doorstep suffering. We can all be outreach workers. And this is my call to action to all of us is to say welfare check, yeah. welfare check. Stop by okay? and see that person. Just even, you don't even have to be within 10 feet of them and go, Hey, are you okay? Are you all right? Welfare check. Just, yeah. It's not like, the, oh, just say hello. F that. Are you okay? Welfare check. Hey, can we get you up? Let's get you upright. You know, let me look at me. Are you okay? You know, can we call you an ambulance? Can I walk you to the shelter? Can I point you to the, the warm meal that's around the corner at an organized place that serves meals? We have 8,000 meals a day in Seattle through just one agency. We don't need to bring food tent side or leave your leftovers that's rude you know give them a place to go that's more dignified than that and if we were in my genesis of of we heart seattle exactly three years ago i'll put my video out this afternoon on social media is there is 700 plus thousand people who could lend a helping hand who could do some more outreach who could find out if that person could just be walked to bread of life or be referred to Bybee or give a phone. I had a guy who's like, I just need to use your phone. I got to call my mom. My dad just died. I can't go home unless I get clean. I got him a bed at a treatment center. Now he's home. Bus tickets home. Um, people get stuck. People get really, really stuck in these cities. And that's the call to action. 
um, that I think if we had just more hands on deck in this crisis that we could save more lives and that should be the focus is how do we save more lives first and foremost. So one question we had at this event, and I think this is a good question to talk to our listeners about, is how do we address the issue of safety if we're going to do this kind of outreach work, and how do you address that? Because in 20, and this is from the Oregonian, I've cited this before, I'm going to link to it in the show notes, but according to the Oregonian, a third of our homicides in 2022 involved homeless people as victims and perpetrators, and many of those involve guns, and our homeless population, unlike... I mean, you must know this, Patrick. Our homeless population in Portland is distinct, perhaps in the world, um, certainly in the U.S., to the extent that they are armed Mm -hmm. with guns, mostly, uh, many, including many other weapons. And they're engaged in killings. Uh, So this this goes kind of beyond, you know, your petty theft or your car theft. How do, I mean, what, how do we address that if we're going to be knocking on tents and doing outreach? Well, there certainly are rare instances where you might hear about a social worker who gets harmed. Uh, we had a horrific story a few years ago where a woman was stabbed to death by her social worker inside their permanent supportive housing. Wait, by her social worker? Her social Excuse worker no. stabbed her? <laughs> so the her client stabbed. Ah, the, the homeless person stabbed the social well, worker? Well, he wasn't homeless. He was in permanent supportive housing, but she went indoors to do... To so do there's it. an example of how Housing First doesn't necessarily work. Well, I mean, yeah, I've been bringing up the story I, just to paint a picture that even, in, even a trained person who went indoors to meet with her client, he ended up stabbing her to death because, you know, these are folks that are have untreated mental health issues. But what I would say to the everyday volunteer and what I will, and I live and breathe this by example, is the crime I see is turf war, people owe other people money for drugs, fentanyl has kind of changed the game. It used to be 20 to $30 a pill to get See, a- in Portland, ours is just more random. Like, we just had somebody slashing the throats of kids that were two black kids that were on the max platform we had somebody um beat the hell out of two elderly men send one to the icu killed the other one yeah Uh, this is all like meth psychosis style stuff is what they're reporting allegedly so your friend that got beaten to death with a hydro nearly beaten to death i mean she's fortunate she's alive yeah mary constantino is an interventional radiologist and made it international news crazy uptick in random complete acts of violence um but being in and around the camps and waking people up and doing outreach and you know somebody was like i don't know about these needles and and, you know a there's really not a lot of needles anymore the needles i think are not (sighs) our issue i mean yeah yeah, that's part of it i mean jesus they really are still to some extent still everywhere in portland you're right but it's a lot more foil frankly and a lot more boba straws that they're you can't find a plastic straw in the city of portland but but you can get one for free from the county yeah (laughs) i I think in um coming back as being a homeless person um the violence was always there. I was hit in the face with a shovel. Um, <laughs> you had mentioned I had great teeth. Uh, these are not my real teeth. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's um, common, right? Yeah, because after violence. you transition back, yeah. I mean, teeth are important. Teeth are extremely important. Because they help you get yeah. a job. Yeah. And they help you fit in with society. Right. Um, most homeless persons I knew, uh, we all carried weapons at some form or another. For, uh, for your own for safety, my own probably, safety. Yeah. I don't like knives, uh, never have. I always carried a potato peeler. 
Oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> it was my choice. Uh, but um, um, the violence is there. It definitely is there, especially around drugs and around you know bad drug deals, around uh, people stealing from each other. That is a huge, huge thing within the homeless community. Sure. Theft amongst each other. And so you become extremely aggravated. You just got that new phone. You just maybe got your ID. And then your backpack gets stolen with all your possessions in it. And um, it becomes a rage thing at, at a certain level, I, I do believe. Um, one thing I did notice and about with guns, with, with the heavier weapons and things like that, that that's, that's dealers, typically. That's, that's dealer level. You know, the, your average homeless person does not have a gun. That's going to be a person that's dealing. They have a gun for their own protection type of thing. And I've stored my litter pick supplies in the kingpin's drug den at the jungle. I'm like, hey, can I keep my rakes and bags and shovels here? And mm-hmm. he's like, sure. I make friends. Right. You do, but you're Andrea Suarez. <laughs> right, so, yeah. But you're there to pick up the litter. You're out volunteering. Right. Be aware. Don't be, you know, in terms of day-to-day safety, don't be down on your cell phone. Be aware of your surroundings. Right. I think um, a good way to start is to do what the Pearl District did, what the um, community association there did, where they hired you to come and... We Portland. That's right. To come and help them with an area of their neighborhood and then to help them learn how to maintain it and they want they could watch you and patrick you said you were there too yeah, yeah. and you did outreach yeah i worked with them uh every weekend and we see, went that's out so important yeah. and, and so, so it's a group activity it's not exactly it's not right. a, not a solo thing there are people there are some solo sur- soldiers I out there recommend it, right sure. I, and i wouldn't recommend it um not even, in this city but yeah um always somewhat go in a group go with someone i mean if you're walking by yourself and you see some trash sure pick up that trash but you know be aware of your surroundings if you do see that person that is laying on the sidewalk in the hot sun or something like that stand a few feet from them and ask them are you okay are you okay do you see them breathing like hopefully anybody you might want to call 911 if if they don't seem like they are uh, I wouldn't approach them. I wouldn't touch them. Um, um, I mean, our volunteers yeah. at WeHeart, together we've found nine dead bodies yeah. by doing those welfare checks. Yeah. And they had been there a long time in some cases. People were passed away in honey buckets, on children's playgrounds, in RVs, yeah. um, in the woods, in plain sight on Sidewalks having gone through rigor mortis, which means they had been there for days on end, de- decomposing. And worst of all that, we also went back and had to clean it up the next day because the city didn't like have the resources to respond fast enough. Right. So that's right. part of part of our journey is um, seeing those deaths. And to answer your question, Kristen, about the personal impacts and the toll that it takes, I think for anybody in outreach or as a first responder. You know, is the depression, is the mm-hmm. PTSD, is the nightmares, the um, my own mental health and um, some bad habits I've picked up to probably self-medicate a little bit over the last couple of years uh, to get me through some sleepless nights because the night terrors are real when you start to see the suffering. Well, you've seen dead bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've, un- you've opened up tents and seen dead bodies, Andrea. 
multiple times. Yeah. Uh, one, uh, I seem to remember one was in a, like a porta potty. Yeah, two two instances where it was one of my volunteers, a senior citizen who that's right who uh, picks up litter in her children's playground and and uh, not once but twice. In fact, she's seen three bodies in Ballard. It's kind of a hot spot in Seattle, which used to be a very premier neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Ballard, to think that there'd just be bodies in porta potties now. I, the morgues are overflowing. I mean, these are these are headlines. Um, it just it's the almost, morgues are overflowing. There's a story I don't know a few months ago in Seattle. The coroner's office was like, "Yeah, we're having to build more racking." I mean, it was really just gruesome. And this is a result of just meeting people where they're at and um, hoping that someday they'll all be ready to get off of fentanyl. And I don't mm-hmm. think anybody at this point with something 50 times stronger than heroin on their own yeah. is going to just walk into Valley Cities or wherever uh, and say, all right, I'm done. I can't give up salty snacks for three days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm yeah. um, not to, to, it's just, it's hard and people need intervention. And if we're not going to, uh, restore the exodus of our police department who are social workers yeah. as well. Yeah. That's they, right. They do keep people alive and save lives. And not all cops are, are uh, bad guys. All cops are brave, you know, and that we need to, um, again, voice at... Is that the, how you feel, Patrick? Absolutely. I think there's a misconception that homeless people don't feel that way. So... When I was on the streets, I never had problems with the police. I never, I never put myself in those situations either. Uh, so I might be a little bit different. Um, but I've had my own bad interactions with my own criminal activity and things that I've done in my life. I probation officers arrest me on site, you know, for literally nothing. So I've had bad situations with bad police officials, but. Being on the other side of this now, some of my best interactions that I've had, especially with my participants, have been with probation officers. Probation officers are some of the absolutely the best workers out there. Uh, their job is to keep you from committing crimes to that individual person. And so I love working with probation officers within our program. And So um, you actually work with the probation officer yeah. to assist with your programming at Bybee Lakes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, several come in, and they'll bring them in themselves. So this person has been messing up. They, they, they're missing their appointments, and this probation officer says, hey, why don't you check out Bybee? Why don't I get you out of this tent? Because you're supposed to have an address when you're on probation. And typically, a shelter is probably not the best address. But if you're in some kind of program, probation officers love our program. They love our, you know, absolutely, you know, they, they bring in so many people. And I'm not talking people just out of car- incarceration. I'm talking about people that have been just messing up on their probation, They've, you know, and want to help them out. Um, we work really closely with the Portland Police Bureau and uh, oh, you do? Por- yeah, okay. and, the, and the Portland uh, Port of Portland Police. Uh, we work with them quite often because um, all the waterways and all the railroad tracks and all that's all Port of Portland uh, Police. So we, we have a really good relationship with them. Um, you know, they're they support us. Law enforcement supports us because they know it works. And so they've always been there for us. We've had police officers often call myself or Tim 
nimble small outreach team and say, hey, we got a guy, can you guys come help? And it's refreshing to see, despite what you hear, you know, that they're out there paying homeless people's tabs so they don't have to arrest them for, you know, eating and running on a tab. <laughs> um, had an officer call and say, do you have a walker in your office? Johnny lost his rocker yeah. or walker. And I'm like, sure, come down to my office. We happen to have walkers regularly wow. do- donated. That's um, great. Stumbled on a client of mine named Fang, and he's just our town. You can't make that up. (laughs) And I'm like, whoa, you guys got two officers pushing, you know, Fang into the back of a truck with his big teddy bear. And I was like, hey, guys, what's going on? I also know Fang. (laughs) Do you really? Fang's been around for a long time. He is a doll. Um, But, yeah, he's he's just always on a pile of garbage and (laughs) holding out for some free weed. (laughs) But I was like, hey, guys, you know, what's going on? And they're like, well, and they're, you know, Fang's getting into the back of a truck with a big teddy bear and. They go, oh, we're going to take him over to the urban rest stop to get a shower. Mm-hmm. Police escort to an urban rest stop to take a shower. And I was like, this is the stories people don't see, that right. we need more community policing and outreach intervention, not police have no business in the public health crisis. And I say everybody has a role in the public health yeah. crisis. Don't cancel any effort that's an effort that works for anybody you know um so we're down 600 police officers in three years up in seattle so we're really really down and um the people most impacted are the vulnerable are the folks living in the tents that are crime you know getting mugged getting raped getting getting preyed on for something like a three dollar pill at this point somebody's so desperate that they don't want to turn another trick or don't want to have to go hustle or rob or boost to just want a night off and they will do anything to get that pill and not get dope sick. And so it's like dog eat dog out there. And yeah. no, I'm not saying that all homeless people are dogs, which <laughs> is an old, 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 old joke. Andrea and Patrick, thank you both so much for taking the time. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for doing this event in the community earlier. And when I know people are going to want to donate and they're going to want to go to your respective websites. So, Patrick, where do we find Bybee Lakes and where do we donate and volunteer? Um, you can go to helpinghandsreentry.org uh, for Bybee Lakes. That's our parent company is Helping Hands. Or you just look up Bybee Lakes Hope Center. And we can call you up and see yeah. what we can do. Or Absolutely, you can, can you can all, you can call nine seven one three 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 fifty seventy is our main number. Okay, nine seven one three 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 fifty seventy. That's correct. And Andrea, where do people find you? Where do they donate? And how do they keep up with what you're doing with WeHeart? We are very active on Facebook. It's a positive, again, a political action based uh, uh, page. Uh, so look us up, WeHeart Seattle. There, WeHeartSeattle.org. Spell it out. And my email is andrea at weheartseattle.org. Questions, follow-up, requests to speak at your Rotary, at your local business improvement district. We can do Zooms. We can do in person. But we just want to continue to repeat this model and amplify that the missing link is civic engagement and volunteering. And I think if we approach it that way, we'll we'll hopefully uh, better manage the crisis. So look us up, and um, thank you for having us on, Kristen. And again, happy birthday, Patrick. Yes, happy birthday, Patrick. Thank Thank you you for coming on. (laughs)